Um, I don't like that light, Jared. <laughs> I'm really an introvert. This is not a happy time. Um, so I was going to tell you, and now, um, Jared, or my thunder has been stolen. Thank you. That's much better. Um, We've had a community meeting some time ago, and one of the comments that showed up was that, you know, can you do anything about the decoration of the church because it's just a black box? So I was going to say, you know, you've been heard. Um, I hope you like it. (laughs) We did this all for you. Um, I just want to take a moment, and maybe this is just me, but with all of the... um, media hype about the hurricane, the the tropical storm, and this, that, and the other thing. I've been feeling a little unrest. Um, It's funny, when a disaster comes, it seems like the first thing people do is go raid the shelves of toilet paper. Uh, So if all of you have stocked up on toilet paper, I'm sure you'll be fine for this two-day emergency. Um, But I just wanted to take a minute and breathe. Um, because there's a lot going on with the weather, with the media. Um, Many of us have spent countless hours here with Speakeasy. um, But at this moment, here we are, here, now. And so if you would just take a couple moments with me and just breathe and be present here, and we can pick all the other stuff up when we get home. Okay, that feels better. Our passage today comes from the book of John, and it's fairly long. As a matter of fact, it's three chapters. Um, But (laughs) don't worry. We'll get through it. It'll be fine. (laughs) And I'm going to make it even longer, um, actually, uh, because the theme of this week's message needs a little bit of background to make any sense. Um. And here's what I mean. The first line of chapter 6, which is actually where our passage comes from, says, once this had all transpired. And unless you know what all this is, it doesn't really make sense. Because we all know that chapters and verse numbers were put in there by editors, right? Uh, So when John wrote and dictated these verses, it was one long narrative. And while the chapters and the headings are helpful to us in some ways, in other ways it's not helpful because it makes us think of each little vignette is in a vacuum, and that's not how it was supposed to be. So before we dive into chapter 6, I want to briefly recount the things that transpired immediately before, because that's what's really important to get us into the right mindset. So here's a brief recap, starting with John 4. In John 4, we see that Jesus has attracted quite the following In fact, the Pharisees noticed that Jesus had a much larger following than even John the Baptist, who was already a concern. So they immediately began to plot against him. Uh, Jesus left Judea to the safer location of Galilee via Samaria. Now, Samaria was a hotbed of idol worship, and basically Samarians were shunned by the Jews. But there, Jesus encountered a woman, and we know her as the woman at the well. Jesus offered her water from which she would never thirst again. The woman recognized Jesus as the anointed one, the Christ, and she told everybody in the village. 
and many there believed. So Jesus remained there with them a couple days, and he conversed with them and he taught them, and then he went on to Galilee. There he healed a young boy based on the faith of his father, and then he proceeded to Jerusalem to the pool of Bethsaida, and there Jesus healed a man who had been disabled for decades with simple words, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. The problem here was twofold. You see, it was the Sabbath. And there were laws against working on the Sabbath, and carrying a mat was considered work. So was healing. So the Pharisees were enraged, and they confronted the the healed man. And they said, must you be reminded that this is the Sabbath? You are not allowed to carry your mat this day. And the man said, look, the guy who healed me, he told me to pick up my mat and walk, so I did. I'm paraphrasing. (laughs) And the man responded, um, oh, and the Jewish leaders wanted to know the identity of this guy who had had the audacity to heal on their Sabbath. But the man didn't know who Jesus was. So a bit later, Jesus found the man in in the temple, and he spoke with him, telling him now that his body was strong and whole, that he should, he should change his life and live according to what he'd been called. He should take care to live well. Not understanding the ramifications, the man in his excitement told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now the Jewish leaders confronted Jesus, and they accused him of performing miracles on the Sabbath. And Jesus' response was, My father is always working. Why wouldn't I? Then Jesus spoke at length about his relationship with God the Father, stating clearly that he was God's son. Now, this didn't strike well to the Jewish people, uh, leaders' ears. Jesus further said he did nothing but the things that his father instructed, which gave them the impression, rightly so, that Jesus had a direct line to the Father, which they did not. And that God had given him a task to do, along with the power to do it. He further stated unequivocally that all scripture pointed to him. Now you can imagine how this went over with the Jewish leaders. Not well. The Sabbath issue keeps arising with with the Pharisees. They do not appreciate the good things Jesus does on the Sabbath because it's the Sabbath. Now most Jews would cower if they were confronted by the Pharisees and spoken to as they spoke to Jesus. But Jesus doesn't. He's very clear. He cares for the poor, the sick, and the marginalized more than he cares for how some people may interpret and apply the laws of God. He also makes it clear that those who follow his path are put on this earth to serve, no matter what day of the week it is. His follower's service comes out of love for him, and all who follow him are to love and serve and especially on the Sabbath. What better way to honor God? Jesus further justified the importance of his work on the Sabbath by claiming that God, his Father, I'm sorry, by claiming that God, as his Father, in ways that suggested he was equal to God. Now, this is another thing that didn't go over well. It was clearly blasphemous. In the eyes of these pious religious folk, they began to earnestly look for ways and opportunities to kill Jesus, whose every word fueled their hatred. 
Okay, so that's the context. We've seen miracles, we've seen confrontation, we've seen Jesus equating himself with God and saying that he does the things that God directly tells him to do. So let's pick up the story at John chapter 6, verse 1. And again, I'm going to paraphrase it a bit because, well, it's really long, and we need to be out of here before the speakeasy starts up again. So <laughs> let's do it. Uh, chapter 6 begins with a crowd pursuing Jesus, hoping to see new signs and miracles. I mean, who wouldn't, right? And in the interest of time, and because these are very familiar stories, having just taken a long slog through the book of Mark, um, I'll just list what happened. So first, Jesus feeds 5,000 men plus unnumbered women and children by transforming five barley loaves and two, lo and two fish into enough for the entire crowd to eat their fill, with 12 baskets left over. After seeing that miracle, the crowd murmured among themselves, this man must be a prophet of God, the one God said was coming into the world. But knowing what was in their minds, that they assumed that Jesus would mount a revolution against Rome and make himself king, Jesus withdrew further away and went to the mountain alone. The next thing we see is that night, Jesus walked on water in the midst of a storm and joined the disciples in a boat on the way to Capernaum. The next morning, the crowds arrived. They had seen the disciples get into the boat without Jesus. But here was Jesus amongst them. The crowd had been looking for Jesus ever since he had passed out the bread and the fish. And when they couldn't find him, they followed the disciples in their own small boats. And seeing that Jesus was there before them, they were perplexed. And Jesus' response was, I tell you the truth. You are tracking me down because I fed you, not because you saw signs from God. Don't spend yourself your life chasing food that spoils and rots. Instead, seek the food that lasts into all ages and comes from the Son of Man, the one on whom God the Father has placed his seal. The crowd asked Jesus for a miraculous sign, as if feeding the 5,000 and healing and such wasn't enough. But they wanted something spectacular to help them believe Jesus responded by telling them that God the Father offers true bread from heaven. Misunderstanding, the crowd said, Master, we want a boundless supply of that bread. Now, just an aside here. Let's imagine, if you will, that this morning you woke up and you opened your front door, and I would say to get your newspaper, but nobody does that anymore, so I don't know why you opened your front door, but you did. <laughs> and out there, there was a goose who had just laid a golden egg. What would you do? I'll tell you what you would do. You'd catch that goose, and you'd keep it with the idea that it would lay more golden eggs, and they'd all be yours, right? Or maybe that's just me. Well, that's what the crowd was doing in a sense. They wanted this Jesus, who performed miracles of healing and production of mountains of food out of virtually nothing, to stick around and make their meager existence a bit easier, right? Plus, elevate their stature among their neighbors because they had Jesus who did all these cool things, so they must be special. But that's not at all what Jesus had in mind. 
Okay, so now we'll pick up the text at John 6, 35 to 69, which is still a long passage, and I will do a bit of editing still. Then Jesus said, I am the bread that gives life. If you come to my table and eat, you will never go hungry. Believe in me, and you will never go thirsty. Here I am standing in front of you, and still you don't believe. All that my Father gives to me comes to me. I will receive everyone. I will not send away anyone who comes to me. And here's the reason. I've come down from heaven not to pursue my own agenda, but to do what God desires. I am here on behalf of the Father who sent me. So if you want to know the will of the Father, know this. Everyone who sees the Son and believes him will live eternally. And on the last day, I am the one who will resurrect him. Some of the Jews began to grumble quietly against him because he had said these things. And they said, wait a minute. Isn't Jesus the son of Joseph? We know where he came from. How can he claim to have come down from heaven? Jesus said, stop grumbling under your breath. No one has seen the Father except the one sent from God. He has seen the Father. I am telling you the truth. The one who accepts these things is eternal life. I am the bread that gives life. I am the living bread that has come down from heaven, and anyone who eats this bread will live forever. The bread that I give breathes life into the cosmos. This bread is my flesh. The low whispers of some of Jesus' detractors turned into an out-and-out debate. What is he talking about? How is he able to give us his flesh to eat, they asked. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not know life. If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, then you will have eternal life, and I will raise you up at the end of time. He spoke these words in the synagogue as part of his teaching mission in Capernaum. Now imagine if you were there. Imagine if I said, you want eternal life, you have to eat my flesh. You have to drink my blood. You'd think I was nuts. So did they. <laughs> Many disciples heard what he had said, and they had questions of their own. How are we supposed to understand all of this? This is really hard teaching. And Jesus said, has my teaching offended you? What an understatement, but that's what he said. What if you were to see the Son of Man ascend to return where he came from? The words I have been teaching you are spirit and life, but some of you don't believe. After hearing these teachings, many of his disciples walked away and no longer followed Jesus. And Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to walk away too? Simon Peter said and spoke for all of them, Lord, if we were to go, whom would we follow? You speak the words of everlasting life. We believe and recognize that you are the Holy One sent by God. Well, there you go. And congratulations if you're still here, either mentally or physically. Um, I think that's a record for the longest scripture passage ever used. <laughs> um, but our question for this week is,
do you also want to walk away? Now, the crowds there had been suffering under Roman oppression and looked for the anointed one to rescue them. And when Jesus began his ministry and miracles abounded, they correctly assumed that he was the one. But when the one began to say and do things that went contrary to what they expected, or when the one asked of them things they were not prepared to do, their immediate thought was that Jesus must in truth not be the one, that they were mistaken, and that they'd been duped. So many of them walked away from Jesus discouraged and disheartened, and some of them were downright angry. The question we could ask this morning is, why did they walk away? But that's not what we're going to do. We're going to fast forward to this century, to this decade, to this place, and look at the question in the context of our own walks of faith. Why do people walk away from Jesus? Why do people abandon their faith? Why would we abandon our faith? Well, I've come up with a few ideas, and these are not exhaustive by any means. But the first one is, maybe they've received bad teaching. Now, I've been a Christian for upwards of 50 years. And uh, just so that you know, I'm not trying to shave um, years off my age. I, when I was approximately 20, I came to Christ. <laughs> and during that span of time, I've been the recipient of some really wonderful teaching about what the Bible says, about who Jesus is, and what this life of faith is all about. But I've also been the recipient of some really bad teaching. For instance, when I was growing up in the faith, the assumption was that all God-fearing people believed that the world was created in six 24-hour days, and that anyone who believed in evolution did not believe in God that science and God could never peacefully coexist, and anyone who said differently was probably going straight to hell. That was the assumption. That was the axiom, I thought. Why? Because that's what I was taught, and I was taught it as being the truth. But you know what? I've come to believe that is not the truth. Now, the transition was a little bit sloppy, because the thought occurred to me, if that isn't true... What else isn't true? And if that isn't true, what if there's no God? And that was kind of a terrifying thought to me. And I was left with a choice to puzzle it out and to wrestle with it and come to a conclusion that worked or to walk away, hang up all this God stuff and enjoy several extra hours on Sundays and no more meetings and small groups. <laughs> Well, obviously, I did not walk away. <laughs> and the wrestling made my faith stronger. And I want to say that again. This wrestling that you do, it makes your faith stronger, not weaker. But being the recipient of bad teaching can have that effect. It can make you question things, and it can make you look at things that scare you. So that's one reason why people might walk away. Another one is, this is not what I signed up for. I didn't get what I was promised. Now, in the 70s, there was an evangelism tool that was very well-intentioned, but incomplete, I think. It was called the Four Spiritual Laws. Anybody heard of those? Mm -hmm. I was accosted with the Four Spiritual Laws when I was 18 on a beach. 
the little booklet. It's very cute. The four spiritual laws were presented in a gospel tract that was written by Bill Bright. And, you know, he's a brilliant man, I have to say, and a lot of good things. He founded the Campus Crusade for Christ. So when I'm saying this, I'm not slamming Bill Bright in any way, or really, not really the four spiritual laws either. Because some say that it was the most significant piece of Christian literature other than the Bible ever created with over 2.5 billion copies in print, okay? So the four spiritual laws are these. Law one, God loves you and offers, you a, or, and offers a wonderful plan for your life. Law two, mankind is sinful and is separated from God. Therefore, we cannot know and experience God's love and plan for our lives. Law three, Jesus Christ is God's only provision for my sin. Through him, Jesus, I can know and experience God's love and plan for my life. Law four, we must individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Then we can know and experience God's love and plan for our lives. Now, these aren't all wrong. In fact, much of the four spiritual laws is well supported by Scripture and are true. However, they only show one facet of a very large diamond. And furthermore, in the 70s, with the advent of end times theology, where Christians everywhere were terrified about being left behind or that their non-believing loved ones would be left to a fiery furnace of hell and eternal damnation, marketing became a thing. There had to be a way to convince or argue or hoodwink unbelieving folks into signing on to the four spiritual laws for their own good. Now here the motive was good. The method was not. And the central message got massaged and sanitized to be made more palatable and more attractive than come to Jesus and he will refine the hell out of you. (laughs) However well-intentioned, there was a problem. Things were promised in the name of God that God never promised. For instance... God has a wonderful plan for your life, which is true, was immediately equated to your prosperity, your health, your happiness, and a trouble-free life. It also set up an in-and-out metric. If you say the prayer, you're in. If you don't, you're out. And because those who are in are on God's side, well, those who are out must be considered less than the innies, and avoided lest the innies be polluted by the outies. There was no concept of journey or of leaning in to the faith. It was an either-or binary proposition. You can see the problem, right? Because millions of fresh new Christians signed on to get this abundant life that they had been promised, but found out that all the problems that, that had existed in their pre-Christian lives persisted but now they had to hide them for fear of being confused with the Audis. Some, in their earnestness, decided to become uber-Christians and diligently read through the Bible. I did this for a while. You know, every year you do the Bible through the year, and the fact that it's the living, breathing Word of God became secondary to the fact that I will read this or die trying, and um, those were bad years. I actually had to take like a four-year fast from Scripture afterwards because I thought, 
this is not, this is killing me. It's not breathing life into me. But any of this, an aside. But in reading the Bible, I had this chilling realization. Not one person in the Bible, not one, not one, had life on the easy street. In fact, even knowing you and some of the really difficult things that you've gone through in your lives and the things that I've gone through in my life, they pale in comparison to what these Bible folks went through. So why did I think my life would be easy street when the examples that were given to me are anything but? But this is not good marketing. So I'm really grossly oversimplifying here to make a point. But during that time, a lot of people fell away because what they had been promised by well-meaning Christian folks didn't happen. Their troubles were not magically taken away. They were not given a winning lottery ticket. The pony that they'd been praying for for decades never appeared. So they became discouraged, disheartened, and either walked away or showed up and played lip service and diluted the faith. So number three, what is being asked of me is more than I can give. Now this is a hard one, but sadly I think it's one of the more common ones. We're going blithely along on our faith walk and then we come up against something we really, really, really want. But according to the Bible, if we're trying to walk a blameless life, it's something we can't have. We've probably all been there in one form or another. And it's hard. It's really hard. I mean, what kind of a loving God sees your desires and says no to his children? And what about those verses about asking and receiving? What about those? Well, they're sandwiched right between the verses about denying ourselves, dying to ourselves, and surrendering all that we have, are, and desire. For any of us, this is a big ask. And for some, this is too big of an ask, and we walk away, not fully comprehending that the guidelines set out for God, or by God, are actually for our own good, set forth by a God who loves us absolutely, even when we choose the lesser but more sparkly thing, because we'd rather have chocolate cake than carrots. So some walk away like Pinocchio, and they, they experience the temporary flashbang of the sparkly thing. But ultimately, they have to cope with the consequences. Number four, I was burned by the church, or by Christians, or both. Honestly, this one breaks my heart, because I look out amongst you, and I know this is a lot of your stories. I've often said that if I were God, which I'm glad we're not, that I were not, and you're really glad I'm not, I would have chosen to work through rocks, not people, and mountain ranges rather than churches. Because rocks and mountains are safe and they're predictable. But sometimes Christians and churches are not safe places to be. And if that's your story, I'm so sorry that you experienced that. I think it actually breaks God's heart when this happens, when the people and institutions he placed on earth to point towards him instead do just the opposite. And when it does happen, people walk away from God, vowing never to darken the door of a church again. And it's hard to blame them. But this draws me to my second main point. What are people actually walking away from 
Well, people walk away from God when it's actually the church or Christians that they're trying to escape. I have a family member who loves God with all his heart, but he won't go to church because he's been burnt. And as I said, sometimes churches are not safe places to be. Why? Because churches are filled with people. And people, by and large, are broken and damaged by life. Consequently, so are churches. But because churches are supposed to be safe harbors for the lost and lonely, they erect walls and chain-link fences around meant to protect those who are inside, leaving the lost and lonely outside. And further, if someone on the inside isn't behaving up to snuff, they're rejected or shunned. Now, most of this goes on subtextually, but people get hurt in churches. I hate to say it. It's true. And this church has been no exception. People have been hurt here, and I hate that even more. When someone is hurt by the church or by Christians they're in, it's easy to walk away from the church altogether because who's to say that the next church is going to be any safer? The second reason, people walk away from God when it's actually themselves they're trying to escape. Sometimes folks would rather hang on to their own coping mechanisms, coping mechanisms that are destructive and further tear them down than surrender them in hopes of the freedom that God longs for them to have. They'd rather stick to their own patterns than to do the deep work that healing requires. But here's a sobering thought. When you walk away from God because you don't want to face your own stuff that he wants to deliver you from, you're walking away hand in hand with the very problem that plagues you. Sometimes people actually are walking away from God. Now, why would anyone do that? Well, we talked about some of the reasons in the previous section. God is not what they expected. God asks more from them than they're, trying to, than they're willing to give. Or maybe something happens in them that is so painful that they blame God for not stepping in. And when they have reached out to the church or for Christians to help, they're met with Job's buddies, full of platitudes and recriminations, when all they needed was understanding and love. So they chuck their faith to the four winds and they strike off on their own. If you've been here, or if you know someone who is, you know the heaviness and heartbreak that words cannot fix. Well, this is the most depressing sermon ever, don't you think? <laughs> I got about this far in writing it, and I thought, oh, okay, maybe I'll leave the church too. But I didn't, <laughs> and thank you for not either. But you know what? It's reality, and some of you have lived in it, or are living in it now. And if liminal church is what we say it is, if we are what we are trying to be, we have to be prepared to see these things and accept these things as reality for some, if not many, of the folks who come through our doors. Or even for the, those of us who have sat in these chairs for a very long time. That is our mission, to be the place where people can question, can deconstruct, can wrestle, can cry and rail against the unfairness of it all. And if we're going to be successful in that mission, we need to look at these inconvenient truths square in the eye 
and be prepared to hold them without judgment. So the thing before us is this. God has entrusted us, and by us I mean all of us, because this is not just the leadership community. This is all of you. God has entrusted us with people who are questioning, exploring, rebelling, hurting, recovering. And I stress this. I want to give some ideas on how to help people find their way back when they're ready to do so. Can I say that again? When they are ready to do so. Because it's their journey, not mine, not yours. And they must dictate the timetable. We cannot hurry it along either for our comfort, and let's be honest, that's why we usually try to do that, to make us feel better, or for theirs. So here are some ideas, and they're not magical, and they're certainly not exhaustive, and they're nothing to apply like a Band-Aid to make things all better that cannot be made all better. The road is not easy to come back. But here are some things that might make you think. First, Learn to listen without judging, advising, or fixing. That's hard. Sitting with someone in pain without trying to explain it or minimize it or fix it is the best gift that you can give a person. When someone is in trauma, they must look to the very bottom of that trauma until they can look out of it. Otherwise, pieces of that trauma will continue to bubble up and plague them. And in some cases, the effect of trauma will never go away, ever. It will never be all better. And that can be very uncomfortable for those of us who sit with them. But that's what love does. It sits, it holds, and it listens. It listens as they say the same thing over and over and over, a thousand times and then a thousand times more. It helps them explore their feelings without prescribing a quick fix. And then it does that over and over and over. Can we learn to do that for one another? Can we sit with our own discomfort at the intensity of someone else's emotions and not try to rush them through so that we ourselves feel better? That's not easy. But that's what love does. Number two... Know when you're over your head. If you can't listen to the pain without it triggering your own, making you unable to be present for that person, you may need to bring someone else into that conversation with the hurting person's permission. We've got trained professionals here. We've got pastors, spiritual directors, therapists who can either help you or the hurting person or direct you to someone who can. You don't do anyone any favor if you sit with them and help them out of your own lack. Even if you do find yourself out of your depth, there's still many ways you can help. A kind note, a meal, a flower, an offer to go to the grocery store, do laundry, something like that. That's still love. And it's a tangible way to show that you care. But to try to give what you're not capable of giving will serve neither yourself nor the person. And if I may give a word of advice, if you are in a situation where you're listening to someone who is in deep pain or trauma, 
you need to get help yourself. Those of us who are in that business, George is nodding his head, um, we can't hold everybody's story without it affecting our own lives. So we need to get help so that we can be there healthy for them. Be wise. Draw upon the resources available to you. Number three, when a person is questioning God, let God speak for himself. God does not need us to be his advocate. When someone has become hopelessly confused about who God is, as opposed to who the church says God is or who they have heard that God is, sometimes it's helpful to lead that person to a red-letter testament, you know, where all the words of Jesus are in red, and say, you know what? Just let Jesus speak for himself. Just read the red stuff. If you want to read the context a little, fine. But just see what Jesus has to say about Jesus. And then decide, is that someone you want to follow? Don't try to explain what he's saying. Instead, ask questions like, well, what does it seem like he's saying to you? Because that's what matters to them, right? A person who is hurting may find comfort and may be able to decide in time whether he or she wants to follow Jesus as Jesus actually is, rather than what they have been taught to believe he is. Something we must realize is that God, the Trinitarian Godhead, the maker of heaven and earth, does not need me to explain what God is doing, and certainly does not need me to repair his reputation. God is who God is, And our attempts to mop up after that and explain the intricacies of God's mystery will not help and will likely be completely inaccurate. To paraphrase a famous TV series, we know nothing, Jon Snow. (laughs) I love this picture, Jon Snow, he knows nothing. (laughs) We must be comfortable in owning that. I do not have all the answers. In fact, I have an embarrassingly small number of answers. But I'm willing to sit with your questions and not try to give you some glib response that I hope will fix you, but will probably not, but will at least make me feel better. Four, be open to exploring with them a new narrative. Ask curious questions. What if that is not what Jesus is like at all? What if that were true? What if that were not true? People in trauma do not need pat answers. They need a safe place to find their way back to peace, to life, and to some measure of happiness, well-being, and health. And that involves baby steps, or sometimes even steps in the wrong direction so that they can see that the wrong direction doesn't work. Now, it's really hard to sit with someone who you're pretty sure is going in a wrong direction, but they're determined to do so. But love lets them do that. Remember, the father allowed the prodigal son to go his own way for a while. It's all part of a journey, and every step in whatever direction can and will still be used by God to bring restoration. God is all about restoration, and he will never ever give up. 
Jesus asked his disciples, are you going to walk away as well? And Peter's answer was so poignant because you can read into it that Peter had his own questions. And that's kind of where I want to leave us today. He said, Lord, if we were to go, who would we follow? You speak the words that give everlasting life. We believe and recognize that you are the Holy One, sent of God. So some questions for you today. Who is Jesus to you? Is he someone you're curious about? Is he someone that you're angry at or maybe disillusioned? Is he someone you've blindly followed because you were supposed to? But when you think about it, you don't really know why. Is Jesus someone you consult with occasionally, but then you go off on your own way? Or is Jesus truly the Holy One sent by God whose words give everlasting life? These are really important questions to wrestle with and to take a long, hard look at. And rather than blithely stating the right answer, pick the true answer. Pick what is true for you and begin your journey there. I'd like to have the worship team come back up. And as they do, I'd like to pray. Lord, take the words that I've said this morning and sift them. If anything be true and helpful, let it stick. If anything I've said offends, let it be explored. And if anything I've said does not accurately reflect you, may it be quickly forgotten. I ask that you would reveal yourself to each of us, not as what we expect, but as you truly are. Show us the extent of your love for each of us, a love that is large enough to hold our doubts, our anger, our confusion, our turnings to our own ways, and our faltering attempts at faith. Walk with us, Jesus. Be ever near, never leaving, never forsaking, enveloping us in your everlasting love. Amen.